Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 30 through 40. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Reb did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and also of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the enemies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others who had trial of mocking and scourgings, yes, and of chains of imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God had provided them something better for us, that they shall not be made perfect apart from us. Quite a scripture passage. As we come to the end of chapter Hebrew, chapter 11, excuse me, of Hebrews, we look back and we see a kind of a progression of various aspects of faith as a writer of Hebrews wrote about it. And we looked at the substance of faith in the beginning and then the basis of faith uh, in the life of Abel. We looked at the, uh, the faith in Enoch, the walk of faith, the work of faith in Noah, the triumph of faith in Isaac and, and Jacob and Joseph. And then last week we looked at the decisions of faith in the life of Moses. Today we're going to be looking at the courage of faith. And the courage of faith as exhibited by all the rest of the characters in the Old Testament. So we're going to be here all day long. The courage of faith. It's really important because it is a part of faith that will demonstrate courage in the face of opposition, of threat, of suffering. True faith does not draw back and hide. It doesn't shrivel up or collapse under pressure. True faith is most of all courageous. Because that's where it really reveals itself. Any kind of faith in God or professed faith in Christ that crumbles under certain or many conditions is not true faith. But this morning, we want to look at amazing examples in Scripture that were, who were tried and tested and demonstrate, uh, excuse me, demonstrated the kind of courage that true faith really exhibits and possesses. Starting with verse 30 and 31, we read, By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around it for seven days, and by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Both examples having to do with Jericho. 
Now the Israelites, as we've been going through Genesis in our study here in Hebrews, led by Moses, had come out of captivity, out of Egypt, and they were on the verge of entering the promised land. The baton of leadership had passed from Moses to Joshua, who was then going to lead them into the promised land. And we find this, this particular story in Joshua chapter 6. And this is where they come to the city of Jericho, strongly fortified, gates closed up tight. The people of Jericho had heard about them. News travels fast, even in, in, back in that time. Uh, they knew, they had heard this vast number of people that were on the move and coming towards them. Now it's been estimated that it could have been up to 2 million Israelites uh, really don't know the exact number because, as you know, during the wanderings, a whole generation had to die off because of their doubt and their disobedience to God. So we don't know the exact number, but it was a huge number, coming to, uh, like a massive wave coming into Canaan. Now you remember in chapter 2 of uh, Joshua, Jericho had already been spied out. A reconnaissance team of sorts had already uh, been sent in. And Jericho was on lockdown. No one was allowed out. No one was allowed in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, as we read in chapter 6, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. Now that in any kind of battle strategizing just seems silly. To follow those instructions would definitely have to have been an act of faith. It was a ridiculous strategy to take a city. And when, but when the walls came down, chapter 6 tells us that they did just as instructed. They destroyed with a sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. So the strategy, God's, worked. So here we are in the, ent- the entrance into the land of Canaan, the land of promise, And there's this demonstration of faith, faith on the part of Joshua as a leader, but also faith on the part of the people that were with him. They crossed the Jordan, which in and of itself was impossible without God's intervention. This is actually the second time that God parted the waters for them in order for them to get to the city of Jericho. And you can read that in Joshua 4. The Jordan River was at its fullest in the harvest season. It was was a rushing river. It wasn't a a trickle going down the, the, the desert area. And then it says that God piled up the water 80 miles north in a small town of Adam, but piled up as a wall so that all the Israelites could pass through. And in crossing the Jordan, they are now sandwiched because then God allowed the water to flow. So the Israelites now are caught kind of between a hard place and a rock, between the, the river, the roaring river, and Jericho. 
And of course, you know the story. This was a, virtually an impossible task for them. But this was their first obstacle and the test of their faith moving into the promised land. And that act of faith was to do exactly as God asked them to do. And it happened just as God said it would because they obeyed God to the letter. Isn't that a novel idea? If we obey what God says to do, He will do what He says He will do. Interesting concept, right? The power of faith. Folks, a demonstration of faith is always obedience. Faith and obedience are inseparable. Because we have faith, we obey God and we will be able to do what He asks us to do. There are basically two reasons why we wouldn't obey God. One is selfishness, because I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to do what God wants me to do. Or we disobey because of lack of faith. We, we don't trust God enough to accomplish what He wants us to accomplish. So faith is demonstrated in obedience, a kind of obedience that has courage, the courage of faith. The kind of obedience that will occur no matter what the price, no matter what the cost. And that's what the writer of Hebrew is sharing with us this morning here at the end of, well, actually all the way through the chapter 11 there of Hebrews. True faith has the courage to believe God in impossible conflict with seemingly ridiculous orders and incredible promises. And the experience of Jericho is an illustration of that kind of faith. To do what seems ridiculous, to do what seems unnecessary perhaps, to do what seems even foolish. But what marks faith is that obedience. What marks love for God is obedience. Like 1 John 3, verse 2 and 3, we're, we're told very clearly and unequivocally, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out His commands. In fact, he, the writer says, John says, this is love for God to keep His commands. Now, are we talking about dis, uh, perfect obedience? Well, we, we are still human, no, but in fact, there's one commentator talking about obedience uh, to God that, that stated it's not the perfection of their life, but it's the direction of their life. That's what we are always aiming at, to be obedient to the Lord. The Holy Spirit chooses now the next illustration of courageous faith as we continue in chapter 11. And it belonged of all people to a prostitute. Seriously? It's found in verse 31. We already read it. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. How in the world does a prostitute get in the hall of fame of faith in the Bible? I mean, she's a Canaanite. She's not even a Jew. She's a Gentile. She's an Amorite, a people group that God had already cursed and who were to be destroyed completely. And what's even more shocking was that she ended up in the Messianic line. We'll look at that in just a second, in the line of Jesus. Now, the statement in verse 11 that tells us that Rahab was not killed with those who were disobedient, I find that interesting because it wasn't just that they, the people of Jericho didn't have the opportunity to believe or didn't have the opportunity to obey, but they chose not to 
obey. That's what disobedience means. Now, if you remember, before they crossed the Jordan, Joshua sent those two spies, we, we mentioned that briefly, over to check things out, and that's when they were hidden by Rahab, the prostitute, um, and they, she hid them up on her roof. But listen to what she tells them in chapter 2. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know, keep that in mind, I know that the Lord has given you this land. That interesting. I know that the Lord has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, the whole, all the inhabitants of Jericho, so that all who live in this country, the whole land of Canaan, all who live in this country, are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. Then listen to this statement. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. That's Rahab, the Gentile, the Canaanite, the prostitute who is proclaiming God as a God of heaven on above and uh, earth and earth below. The opportunity, therefore, was there for them to believe in God. They had heard, because she had heard, she had make, made the choice to believe. The people of Jericho didn't believe, they decided to disobey. They sought no mercy or grace from the God of the Israelites. They could have. Rahab did. They sought no forgiveness from God. They had no interest in obeying Him at all. As a result, the whole city was wiped out except for Rahab and her family. Why? Because Rahab welcomed the spies in peace. She believed in the true and living God, and she believed fully in all the revelation that was available to her. Let me just read you what takes place at, the, at that point from Joshua 2. After her declaration of her faith in God, she says, Now then, please, swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord. See, she had asked for a sign. You tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father, mother, your, your brother, and all your family into your house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our 
head if a hand is laid on them. In other words, they're, 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 they're not going to know when they go in and rush in to, to destroy the whole city, they're not going to know one person from another person. Unless the house is identified, and then they will leave that house alone. But if you tell what you are doing, what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So they sent, she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And then over in chapter 6, verse 25, just before they, they burned the city to the ground, destroyed everybody, we're told that Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. She became a part of the people of God. Isn't that neat? This on the part of Rahab was an act of courageous faith in the true and living God. She believed and staked her life upon it. And amazingly, according to Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, she is then placed into the line of the Messiah. How is that possible? It actually ties in with the story of Ruth. It turns out that Rahab is the mother of Boaz, the husband of Ruth. That then makes her what? The great-great-grandmother of King David. Isn't that amazing? Incredible. Rahab has the faith that courageously stands in the midst of extreme danger. That's what faith does. That's what the courageousness of faith does. It doesn't crumble because the circumstances are threatening or difficult. True saving faith holds on to God, holds on to His promises, holds on to what is right, and obeys God no matter what the price. Again, we come back to Jesus' statement in Matthew 16, 24. Whoever wants to be my disciple must what? Must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. The price may be heavy. The price may even be death. Is that where we are in our faith? Do we truly love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength until death do us part? Well, conquering Jericho was just the beginning, and the people of Israel began to settle then in the land of Canaan. And beginning in verse 32, the writer of Hebrews basically runs through the history of the Old Testament all the way to the end. He starts with the judges, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. He touches the kings by naming King David. Then he mentions Samuel, the first of the prophets. And then he covers all the rest of the prophets by mentioning the prophets. And then following that, there are all kinds of statements about, what, uh, about the kind of suffering that they all endured. And in every case, their faith stood the test. Listen again, starting in verse 32 there in Hebrews 11. He kind of ramps it up, kind of brings the whole chapter to a crescendo all the way to the end of the chapter. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me. 
If I tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, but foreign armies put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword. They, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, uh, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Wow. He mentions the names of six men there in verse 32. Critical men in the nation of Israel who demonstrated that faith in God in a crisis situation is paramount. They were all courageous in their faith. The first one is a familiar name, uh, the name of Gideon. If you want to read the story of Gideon sometime... It's found in Joshua, excuse me, Judges chapter 7. Now Gideon was a judge. Um, a judge at that time, it was before the kings began in the kingdom of Israel. Um, these were men, and actually one woman, woman was in, included, who were elevated to a place where their leadership and their wisdom put them in a ruling position in the life and times of Israel. And this particular judge, Gideon, had to face the Midianites, which had an army of 135,000 men. Now, you probably remember the story of Gideon. He he starts out with 32,000. 32,000 men. Not impossible odds against 135,000 men, but certainly not ideal odds. Not very good odds. And then God comes to him and says, Hey, Gideon. You got way too many men here. You need to whittle your army down. So he does that. No more. You need to whittle down even more. Further, further. And he got down to 300. 300 against 135,000. Now the odds are literally impossible. And then God comes to him and tells him that he needs to go against these 135,000. At this point, Gideon can't even strategize. There's nothing to strategize. How do you strategize with that? Which meant that he was now completely at the mercy of God. Isn't that where God always wants us? Always at his mercy. So because Gideon can't strategize, God does the strategizing for him. That's always the best way anyway. And he gives him these kind of strange instructions. He tells them to get special weapons of war. And these special weapons of war were clay water pitchers, torches, and trumpets. No swords, no knives, no spears. And then he tells them to go find the Midianite army. Crazy strategizing. By any stretch of the imagination. Absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. But Gideon didn't argue. Isn't that amazing? We find no argument from Gideon because his faith was so strong, he trusted God. He had to trust God. He wasn't naive. He understood the odds of death were 100%, humanly speaking. You remember what happened. They split into three groups of 100 each. 
And they, they, were, they went around and uh, on the surrounding hillsides where, surrounding where the, the Midianite army, where their camp was. And it was night, the middle of night, and they lit their torches. And at the right signal, they smashed the clay, uh, the clay pitchers, making a racket. And then, it, and then as they lit their torches, they blew the trumpets. And the Midianites went into a panic probably assuming that every torch lit was a whole company of soldiers, when in reality it was one man for every torch. And the Midianites waking up in the middle of the night, somewhat disoriented, in total panic, started fighting for their life in the dark, thinking they were fighting this huge Hebrew army, but in reality they were massacring each other, totally destroying each other. Absolute slaughter. It would have been pretty hard to believe God in that setting to go into that battle. Unless you had that supernatural faith in a supernatural God. Everything is possible. Then there was Barak. There's faith involved and interestingly some doubt involved in his particular story. We find that story in Judges chapter 4. Now, Barak had 10,000 men, and he was going up against Sisera, a commander of a massive army. doesn't give us a number, but he had this huge number of chariots included in this army. Again, horrible odds. And God sent a message to Barak through a woman by the name of Deborah, identified here in this passage as a prophet, but then later became one of the judges. Deborah said, here's a message from God. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Credible promise from God. Here's where the faith mixes with some doubt in the mind of Barak. Barak said to her, quote, if, you go, if you go with me, Deborah, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. He wasn't sure about this, and so he wanted the spokesperson for God to go with him. Just kind of an additional assurance. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, because you're doubting and not trusting God completely, the honor, she says, will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman." So what happened? Well, of course, a victory did come. God promised a victory, incredible victory. Verse 15 of Judges 4 says that at, at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Herosheth Hagayim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Well, what happened to Sisera, the commander? Well, he was still running in the opposite direction. Listen to the rest of that story, Judges chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, who uh, uh, Sisera was a commander for, Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber, the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come in, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. 
I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him back up. Stand in the, door, in, the, in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there? Say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg, uh, the peg through the temple into the ground, and he died, uh, obviously. That's what Deborah was talking about. I will give Sisera into the hands of a woman. But the point of Hebrews is that this is a small band of mostly unarmed infantry in Israel routing a chariot division division by faith, stepping courageously into an unbelievable battle, trusting God by faith. Then we come to Samson. We all know the story of Samson. A lot of great stories about Samson in Judges 13 through uh, chapter 16. He was Israel's champion against the Philistines. The Philistines were kind of this primary enemy of Israel at the time, and they kept coming, and they kept showing up. And in spite of Samson's stupidity, in spite of his bad and tragic relationship with Delilah, in spite of his loss of strength, this man had years of great, strong faith in God. And in the end, he recovered from his bad choices, and he demonstrated great courage once again with the power that God returned to him, conquering the Philistines. And Samson knew from the very beginning that this is what he was born for. This is what he was called to do. Listen to what God told his mother in Judges chapter 13. You will become pregnant. God is speaking to his mother. You'll become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because a boy is to be a Nazarite. Dedicated to God from the womb, before he was even born, from the womb, he will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So he knew from the very get-go, his parents had to have told him as soon as he was able to understand that what he was going to do was at God's direction, that he would know and experience the power of God. This is a faith and nothing but faith, and he never flinched in conflict. Now, the next name that we see here is Jephthah, who is also in the book of Judges. And just briefly, his faith exhibited in chapter 11. It says, Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites. The Ammonites were another powerful enemy of the Israelites as they were moving through Canaan. And the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel Karamim, I know you don't care about those names, but it's, it's there. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. Why was he able to do that? Because in his faith, as God promised, which gave him the courage to then accomplish it. Then in Hebrews, we actually leave the book of Judges and move into the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, where we find David the next name that's in the list of the writer of Hebrews. As you know, David was a triumphant and courageous man who fought the fight for the people of God because he trusted God. He had total confidence in God's word and God's power. 
And he came back from, as he came back from battle, the people began to sing. You remember, Saul has defeated his thousands, or killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Of course, his most familiar fight is the one-on-one battle that he had with the giant Goliath. When everyone else was quaking in their boots, he stepped up out, he stepped out with a sling and a stone. By faith, confident and courageous, in the Lord. In fact, when he met Goliath out on the battlefield, we read this, and this is probably the most important part of that whole battle. David said to the Philistine, he said to Goliath, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. He knew that it wasn't his power. He knew that it wasn't his prowess. He knew that it wasn't even his ability with that sling of his as he was going into the victory, to have that victory. He knew that this was a spiritual battle. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. That should always be our battle cry. I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Almighty, I come against you. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us in verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Same forces taking place in the Old Testament time, same forces taking place in the New Testament times, same forces that are against us in the present. Same principle, same teaching, same theology, Old Testament New Testament, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Courageous in faith. The next name on the list is Samuel, who was a contemporary of David. He, too, was a great man of faith. He, felt, uh, he, he faced a rebellious and idolatrous people, even among his own people, with courage and great conviction. And as a prophet, he spoke God's word. He didn't think a lot about his own personal safety or his own personal protection. Whatever God told him to speak, he spoke with boldness. He was fearless when he warned the people. And he did that a lot if you read through those books. Even including the great high priest Eli. Nobody goes against the great high priest. Samuel did because God gave him those warnings. And then back in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, the writer then mentions the prophets. The prophets. That's a sweeping category which goes from First and Second Samuel all the way to the Old Testament. It goes through the period of the historical books. It goes through the period of all the ups and downs of all the kings of Israel uh, when the, 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 uh, the, the kingdom was united, Israel, and then the whole division of the kingdom between Israel and Judah all the way to the end of the Old Testament. In our passage, the writer, rather than continuing a list of names, which he could have done, he gives us the experiences that these people went through. Very defining and horrible experiences which these men and women endured with the the unconquerable courage of faith. Every one of them. These great heroes, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, through faith... He says, and then he starts his list of events. Conquering kingdoms, administering justice, and gained what was promised. 
So Joshua and the others fighting all those battles that we've been talking about gained the promised land. Through faith, they shut the mouths of lions. That describes Daniel, who was thrown into the lion's den because he would bow to no one except God. Through faith, they conquered the fury of the flames. That would be Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, who were thrown into the super inferno so hot that a number of the soldiers who were throwing them into that fire uh, burned up and died themselves. And yet these men did not go up in flames. In fact, their clothes were not even singed. Why? Because God protected them for not bowing down to other gods. In fact, the king saw a fourth person in, in, in amongst those three. A person, a shining person, it, it describes, and no doubt, another appearance of Jesus. They conquered by faith. They escaped the edge of the sword. Who, who, was, um, who was it that was always trying to kill David? King Saul, right? Always chasing David down because of his jealousy. And God protected David. Of course, he was also protected from Goliath's sword. And then there was Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6 when the king wanted to cut off his head. And God protected Elisha from that as well. And through faith, their weakness was turned to strength. In verse 34, we think of Hezekiah. Hezekiah who prayed for long life. In 2 Kings chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 20, we read Hezekiah became ill, was at the point of death. But because he was a good king, God gave him more life. He had no son, but he believed in God's power and God's promises. And Hezekiah prayed and he was healed and lived another 15 years and received a son as well. Through faith, they became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. This refers once again back to all the many judges and kings, some of whom we just talked about being able to defeat vast armies because of their faith in God, because God said, I am with you. And then in verse 35, through, through the faith of these heroes, women received back their dead. Raised to life again, it says. And in 1 Kings chapter 17, that's, we, we look and see uh, um, Elijah, who healed the dead son, uh, son of the widow Zarephath. And in 2 Kings chapter 4 is then Elisha raising a child of the Shunammite woman from the dead. Amazing examples of faith that conquers overwhelming and sometimes life-threatening situations. And you know, the petty problems and the ridicule that the readers of Hebrews may have been suffering for their faith and for their identification with Christ was nothing compared to what took place with all these heroes of the faith from the Old Testament. But that's not the whole picture. Sometimes God chooses not to let His people conquer the struggle that they might have to face, but rather refines them through the struggle. Again, verse 35, we read, There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released. How could they be released? By renouncing their belief in God. But they refused to be relieved. That's not what we would call victory necessarily, right? They were still bound up and tortured so that they might gain an even better resurrection. They were tortured. The Greek word is tumbanizo. This is an interesting Greek word here because it comes from tumpanum, which means drum. So tumpanizo means to stretch a person on an instrument of torture resembling a drum 
and then they beat him to death. Horrible. Horrible stuff. But they suffered in that way because they refused to deny their faith. And so in doing so, refused to be released. Why? So that they might gain an even better resurrection. Even in the Old Testament, they knew there was to be a resurrection to a greater eternal life. In fact, they knew that that life was so much better that they were willing to suffer all of this for it. Some faced jeers and flogging and even change and, and imprisonment. Jeremiah was one who faced all of that. And you can read about that in Jeremiah 38. Tortured, chained, uh, imprisoned, thrown into a pit. Daniel was another one who endured, endured much, much of that. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say they were put to death by stoning. What, what, that, that happened to Jeremiah as well, according to, tra, according to tradition, as well as in the prophecy of Zechariah. They were sawed in two. In two, excuse me. Tradition says that Isaiah the prophet's life ended when he was sawn in half. They were killed by the sword, and some of them became exiles. In verse 37 we read, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute and persecuted and mistreated. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes of the ground. There was a price they paid for their faithfulness to God and their assurance of a better resurrection. And we find an amazing phrase at the beginning of verse 38. The world was not worthy of them. The world was not worthy of them. Isn't that a great statement? The world was not worthy. The world thought the believers of old and the prophets were unworthy. The world deemed them unworthy to live, unworthy to be comfortable, unworthy to be affirmed, unworthy to be approved, unworthy to be left alone. As so much what's going on in the sentiment of the world today, isn't it? And it's just getting worse and getting stronger. But the truth is that the world was not worthy of them. Why did they do this? Why did they suffer this kind of terrible treatment? They did it because of what they believed was in the future waiting for them. A better resurrection. It was worth it. And the writer draws this chapter to a close with verse 39 by saying these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. It was all faith. That's the point of this whole chapter. They didn't know about Christ they didn't know, uh, they, they, excuse me, they only knew about the prophecies of the coming Messiah. They knew that he had not yet come. They, they, they knew that he hadn't died, hadn't been risen from the dead. They had to believe God's promise, and they did. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised in the last verse, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Would they be made perfect or complete? The word perfect in the book of Hebrews referring to being saved. Perfect means access open and granted to God. Full access to what the Old Testament couldn't give, but was promised in Christ. They live by a faith in something they couldn't see. That takes us back to the first verse of Hebrews, chapter 11. Faith is a substance of things hoped for, 
the evidence of things not yet seen. You know, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul tells us that in Christ you have been brought to fullness. That's what Christ does for us. The Greek word for fullness means to be made full, to be made complete. Christ completes us. That's how this, these great heroes lived, anticipating that completeness, anticipating that fullness, anticipating uh, what, what Christ, the perfection. In fact, in faith, they counted on a salvation that would be provided in a way they could not yet see. That's a lot of faith. We have the New Testament. We have the teachings about Christ and all He's done for us and the victory that we have for us. And yet so often, we stumble in our faith. So what do we do with all these examples of great faith? All these witnesses of faith? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, come back next Sunday. We're going to deal with what the therefore is next Sunday. Father, this morning we thank you. Amazing chapter. Amazing chapter. And I pray that as, as we are getting a glimpse of what these men of, and women of the Old Testament went through by total faith in You and Your Word and what You could do for them. Father, I pray that You'd, you'd maybe get this point of comparing <laughs> what they were willing to go through to what we today perhaps are willing to go through or not. Father, I pray that we would have the courage to step out in faith to trust You to have a closer relationship with you so that we can step out at your word. Whatever it is that you have us uh, do, whatever ministry that you want us to be involved in, uh, wherever you want us to go, if you say go, Father, our, our only response ought to be yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I'll do it. And as we step out in faith, we know that you will work in our midst. You'll work in within us to give us the power, to give us the courage, to give us the wherewithal, to give us the ability to accomplish what you have asked us to, to accomplish. And we will then become those instruments in your hands, holy instruments to be used by you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.